You know, um, the airline industry is recovering slowly from the pandemic. I think we're back up to travel levels about 2014. This past year, 2022, 747, not the airplane, but 747 million passengers traveled in America. And every one of them did exactly the same thing. They went through the same process. They purchased a ticket. They presented it then with an I, for an ID check. They went through security check, and when they did, depending on whether or not you've got TSA pre-check or not, it's a little different, but you relinquish all of your valuables, your keys to your house, your keys to your car, your cell phone, that sort of stuff, because those things set off the alarm. You set them off to the side, and then you go through the security check. And then you go to a gate, a singular gate that's tagged, designated, and hopefully you go to the right gate for the right destination. Often they do change those gates from terminal to terminal, but you go to the gate that's specifically tagged for a specific de destination. Then you get on the board, on board and everybody assumes a common identity. You're no longer a preacher or a plumber or a lawyer or a doctor or a secretary. You are a what? You're a passenger. Everybody assumes that same identity for a common purpose, and that is to do what? To arrive at the same time on the ground safely, a safe landing. And you make agreement to conform to the airline safety and behavior rules throughout the flight. And if you misbehave, the air marshal will have something to say to you. And you follow one person, only one person then, and that person is in command. And who is that? the pilot. He gets there slightly ahead of the people in first class who get there slightly ahead of the people back in the, in the rest of the common area. Well, you know, it's that way in much of life. You know, yesterday I went and saw the stars, and yes, they beat the avalanche. This weekend, almost 400,000 fans will go to NHL arenas for 22 games. And in those 22 games, those different venues, they go through the same process. They purchase the ticket, they present the ticket, it scans, you get admission, and then you do the same thing. You relinquish all of your personal property off to the side, go through a narrow gate for the security check, and you assume a common identity. You're all what? Fans. You're no longer a student, you're no longer a teacher, you're no longer whatever your profession is. You're what? You're a fan. Now, you're divided. That's true. You're rooting for different teams, opposing teams. And some people walk away happy, and some people walk away sad. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, too. Uh, every uh, game that I've been to, they have uh, on the video uh, screen, they then tell you, look, there are rules you need to not misbehave. You don't need to drink too much and become unruly, and, which is interesting to me because it's always about the, the third period then when everybody else out there has had about three beers when they start playing the drinking songs. But anyway, <laughs> having said that, you're supposed to follow these rules so that you don't disturb other people around you. You conform to the safety and behavior rules of the arena. Well, Jesus has given us a sermon 
that gives us, some would see it as a rule kind of sermon. I see it a little bit differently. It is at the beginning of his ministry, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And what has Jesus done up to this point? He has come preaching the good news of God. Remember we said that that message was very clear. The kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And then he gathered his disciples. We saw a couple of weeks ago, he said, do what? Follow me, come follow me. And he had a purpose for, he had purposes for them. Come follow me so that you can be with me, that you can proclaim the good news, that you can be about the healing ministry, which is more than just physical healing, emotional and spiritual healing ministry. And you can do as what I'm doing. You can help to liberate souls. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, is, of course, the greatest and most famous sermon ever known. In that, he identifies the identity of his disciples, kingdom disciples. He does this through the Beatitudes, and then he tells them that they are to be salt and light. And then he explains the kingdom ethic, that is, the rules to which kingdom people will conform and by which they will behave and treat others. And then he clarifies relationships, relationships that we have with each other and how they are to be observed, and also our relationship with God. And then he lays forth some pretty stern expectations. I'll just pick four of them. These are not, not limited to these four, but think about these for a moment. What are his expectations of kingdom people? Your righteousness should do what? It should surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will not get into the kingdom. Wow. And then he says, near the end of chapter 5, the way it's divided in our Bible, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. That kind of righteousness, that kind of perfection. And then he says, after don't worry about all these things, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, do what? All the time. Always be about this. Always doing what first? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the rest of these things, they will take care of themselves. These are pretty high standards. And then he closes the sermon, near the end of the sermon. Some would say this is really the end of the sermon before he gives the invitation. He says, always be about this. Treat others as you would have them treat you. Friends, these are high standards. And then what does he do? Then he gives the invitation. And then he invites people to come into the kingdom. And that is the message of this morning's sermon. And that is following the narrow way. In chapter 7, verse 13 and verse 14, he puts it this way. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. In this invitation, there is a monumental decision of the first magnitude to be made. There are two possible destinies, and the world doesn't like to hear this, but it is very clearly put forth by our Lord. There are two possible destinies for every single soul that walks or has walked or will walk the face of this globe. Every person. 
One is destruction, and let's be blunt about it. It's perdition. It's damnation. It's utter ruin. It is eternal misery, he says. Folks, this isn't annihilation. It's not that when we come to the end of life, if we've gone down this path, then we will simply cease to exist. No, it is eternal misery. Jesus equates this when he tells the parable of the marriage feast with outer darkness, eternal. When he speaks about the separation of the sheep and the goats and those that have not cared for the least of these, my brothers, he describes it as eternal fire that is prepared for the devil, eternal punishment. He is very blunt about that. That is one of the possible destinies that everybody listening to this message this morning that has ever breathed the breath of life on this globe, it is possible for them to experience. And then he says there's another option, there's another destiny, life. The everlasting continuation of your living soul. Eternal life is what he's talking about here. The word zoe from which we get zoology, but in the context of this passage and other passages, it's clear he's talking about eternal life, living forever with God in his home in heaven, in his kingdom. And the reward that comes, this reward of life comes to those who have done this. They have believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as their Savior. Not only that, but they have not just believed here, but they have chosen then to leave all, to give up all, to set aside all of their personal possessions as they go through that security gate, and then to do what? To leave all for Christ and for the gospel, is what he tells his disciples. And they have responded to his call to minister to the least of these. You see, everyone must make this choice. It's not optional. Everyone either actively or passively chooses one path or the other. This is an Old Testament concept that goes all the way back to Moses when he is about to leave this earth himself. And he looks at Israel in the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, we have it recorded, where he says, you know, I'm calling on a witness. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and I have set before you death, the blessing and the curse. What's he talking about? He has just laid all of the commandments out of the Lord, and he has called them to obey them. And if they do, they will be blessed. And if they disobey, they will be cursed. And so then he says this, so choose, choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. This echoes the Garden of Eden. It echoes the choice that God gave Adam and Eve. He gave them all of the trees of the garden from which they could eat. And amongst them, the tree of what? Life. You may choose to eat from all of those trees. But he also gave them the choice. They could be disobedient and eat of the tree of, the, of knowledge of good and evil. And we know what they did. It's amazing, astounding. You know, it's easy for us retrospectively to look back and to say, I know that I would not have done that, but I suspect we would have. Why eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when you know that it is cursed when you have the opportunity to eat from the tree of life? Because we like knowledge. We like our own freedom. We like our own self-determination. We like to set our own course. And that was the problem with Adam and Eve. You see, this type of choice, it can be 
either dynamic or passive. You see, if you enter the narrow way, it must be a conscious, dynamic, proactive choice. One must choose to do that. It's not the same with the other pathway, the broad way, not the narrow way, but the broad way can be either active or passive. Some people choose to hear the message of the good news and to reject it. They choose to hear the message of God and His calling and invitation, and they choose to reject it. But folks, most of the folks that walk down the broad way don't really make that active choice. They do it passively. They simply do it by what? Just going with the flow. But folks, that is a decision, as passive as it is. You see, there are the many, and then there are the few that Jesus talks about in this passage. And history says this. History proves this. The Bible shows this, that the many disobey, and there are only few who obey. In in Noah's day, there were only eight souls who obeyed, got into the ark, and the door was shut. Moses warned. In Exodus, the 23rd chapter, just after the giving of the Ten Commandments, he he warns them, do not do evil. He doesn't just say don't do evil. He says, don't do as the masses do, as the rest of everybody else does. Don't do evil that way. And Jesus observed himself. He said, many are called. Many are called, but what? Few are chosen. And that is because of the decision that they have made. You see, the invitation is open for many. Christ said this. I did not come to be served. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. A ransom for whom? For many. The invitation is given to many. And he says later that many will come. Many will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, from the far corners of the world. There will be many who will be saved. But comparatively, friends, we know this from history, comparatively, that is a minority. Comparatively, those who choose the narrow way about which we are speaking this morning is a minority. It's unpopular. Jesus told his disciples, after he told them how much he loved them and why he had called them to love one another, he says, you know this, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You see, he's talking about the minority there. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. It would love you if you were part of the world, if you were part of this broad majority that goes down the broad way. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, you see, the world hates you. It is a minority, a small. There are few that walk down the narrow path. And then he gives three warnings after this. He describes pretenders. He describes pretenders in the Sermon on the Mount who are Broadway walkers. First of all, he describes them as false prophets. Some, you see, walking the Broadway bear bad fruit. They're false prophets. They pretend to be prophets of God, but they are false, and you can tell them by their fruit. They bear bad fruit. You see, there are two kinds of trees, just as there were in the garden. There's a tree that bears bad fruit, and they're the Broadway walkers. And there is the tree that bears good fruit, and they're kingdom people. And then he talks about, secondly, those that say, someday, Jesus says, you're going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I did not know you. You see, these are the presumptuous name droppers. They're the ones that simply say they can say the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will say, come into my kingdom. And it says here, if you are a broad way walker, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to say, depart from me because I did not know you. 
Why? Because you didn't do the Father's will. You see, kingdom people walk the narrow way, and they do the Father's will. And then he describes a third kind of Broadway walker, the foolish listener. The one that listened and heard everything that Jesus said. Can you imagine sitting on that hillside and listening to Jesus himself proclaim the message of God in the Sermon on the Mount? Listening and taking it in. Can you imagine being one of the 5,000 or 4,000 that he fed and listening to his message? And you take all of that in and then do what? Nothing. Nothing about it. And Jesus said, those who have heard my words and do not act upon them are like the broad way walkers that do what? They build their house on what? Sand. And it will be destroyed. But those that are narrow way walkers, he says, they build their house on the rock. And of course, we know that he's talking about himself. You see, the Broadway characteristics are pretty obvious. The Broadway is the popular way. It's the way that's influenced by majority culture and cancel culture today. You see, everyone's doing it. The Broadway frowns on nonconformists. It frowns upon those that walk the narrow way, people who do not go with the flow. The broad way is the way of least resistance, the fair-weather sailors on calm and easy seas that seek worldly success. The broad way is indiscriminate. The broad way, many people who walk the broad way do so because passively they don't make a decision. They don't discriminate. The broad way is the natural way. The broad way is to do whatever feels good, whatever feels natural, without boundaries that have been established by God's revelation. The broad way is the easily accessible way where many go into that broad gate, and the world offers plenty of pleasure, alluring, yet destructive choices to make. You see, there are no restrictions. The broad way is superficial. It looks at the temporary things and the outside things. It's a world of glitz and glamour. The broad way is the short-sighted way. It is the way that does not look at eternal consequences. The broad way is self-focused. It obsessively worries about my personal image. It obsessively worries about my provision. What will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? It does not seek the kingdom of God. The broad way is justified by rational human systems. It sounds logical. It sounds like a good idea, it uses human reason. And you know, there are all kinds of broad ways. In Jesus' day, we have some examples of this, and one of them was the religious broad way. It was a way of religious hypocrisy. You know, most Jews believed that they would be saved because they were descendants of Abraham. They were religious people. They observed their religion according to cultural and social observations, and they kept the law as a matter of form, but not of spirit. And the epitome of righteousness for the religious person in Jesus' day was to do what? It was to keep the legalistic code of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees' way was not a narrow way. In fact, folks, it was a broad way. And Jesus condemned this as religious hypocrisy because while they were keeping all the rules, they were rejecting the Son of God. You don't know me and you don't know the Father because you don't follow my message. There was the broad way in Jesus' day of worldly materialism. Many followed him to be fed. Many followed him to be healed. Many followed him to be provided for, and that was it. They sought mammon and the storing up of riches. And then when he gave them hard sayings, when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, I am the bread of life, then there were many who abandoned them because, you see, those are spiritual things that were of no consequence to them. And Jesus said this, if the spirit, it is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But there's some of you, you see, that don't believe. They were following the worldly mammon way, the broad way of materialism. There were some in Jesus' day that followed the broad way of skepticism. Many doubted. No matter how many miracles he performed, they always wanted another miracle. They wanted a sign. Show us a sign. And they wanted more evidence. And Jesus was very pointed about this. He said, you know, that's a sign of an evil and an adulterous generation. You see, it always craves a sign. And yet no sign is going to be given to you except the sign about which we spoke a couple of weeks ago in the evening. And that's the sign of Jonah. And he was speaking about his resurrection. In Jesus' day... There was the broad way of relativism, and yet we come back to that issue that we've dealt with so much in the 21st century, when Jesus looks at Pilate and says, everyone who is of of the truth hears my voice, and you know what Pilate said. Pilate said, what is truth? You see, all of those broad ways that I have described, that of religious hypocrisy in Jesus' day, Worldly materialism and mammon in Jesus' day, the world of skepticism in Jesus' day, the world of relativism in Jesus' day is exactly where we are today. For that, those are the pathways that people walk in the broad way. Nothing has changed, and Jesus' message has not changed either. You see, he says, all of those ways, my friend, lead astray. That means they lead away. They lead away, in fact, from God. And then he gives them another choice. He says there's the narrow way. The characteristics of the narrow way are pretty much the opposite. You see, few enter the way. It's the minority, very much like the Old Testament remnant that was very, very small. We said the other evening, only 50,000 returned to Judah. But there were millions that stayed in in the Babylonian territory. Only about 2 to 3% of those were the remnant. You see, a minority the broad way, the narrow way, rather, is not the obvious way. It's not found by natural observation. You're not going to find the narrow way by simply thinking it through logically or naturally. It comes through the divine revelation of God that is given in His Scripture, in His Word. The narrow way is a proactive choice. It is one that is intentionally made with an awareness of the magnitude of the decision that one is making. And it's an urgent matter. It's an urgent matter because the kingdom is near. It's a spiritual decision when we enter the narrow way. What we're saying is, what really matters is not matter. What matters is spirit with eternal consequences. There's going to come a point where we must answer whether or not we survive this mortal life and enter into eternity with eternal life beyond. Jesus addressed this urgency of the matter in the parallel passage to this one this morning. There is a parallel passage. In Luke, the 13th chapter, as he's traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he's teaching along the way and going through the villages and the towns, someone stopped him and and, and asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? And then he said this, and here's the summation of what is said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, strive to enter the narrow door, the the narrow gate, the narrow way. For many will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, at first that sounds like what he's saying is, I'm trying to keep you out, but that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there's going to come a point when the narrow door is closed 
and they're going to be people that want to get in, and it's too late. He later explained, you see, once the door is closed, it's too late for the outside observers to knock and get in. It's like Noah. When the door was shut, it was too late, and eight souls were saved. And then he went on to say this, people on the outside are going to say, but Lord, we ate with you, and we drank with you, and and you taught in our midst. You see, they presumed too much. They presumed because they were children of Abraham that he was just another prophet that came further to explain about how Abraham would be their savior. And he's going to say, you can't come in. He will say, I do not know you. You will be thrown out, he says, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a destiny of perdition. There are others, by the way, he said, who will come in and eat. The tables, they will come to the tables and the tables will be turned. There are the people that you really don't expect to be there because they did enter the narrow way. And they will be first and not last anymore. You see, this is an exclusive choice that is to be made. There is one gate, it is small, and it is singular. This decision about entering the narrow gate is a conscious conscious choice. And there's only one way beyond that gate. The world resists this. Most of the world will tell you, well, there are many ways to God, but Jesus is very clear. There's only one way. And there are three actions that he talks about in this passage to take. He says, first, you must find it. You must look for it. It's an intentional search. You come upon it through thoughtful inquiry and asking ultimate questions about life and death. And the answer is given through divine revelation. Just before this, Jesus has said, ask, seek, and knock. And there's the key. You see, we seek answers about life. We ask and God answers through his word. We seek and then he shows us the gate. The gate is Jesus Christ. And then we knock and he opens the door and lets us in. You see, see, this suggests that there's something of great value for which we are seeking. It's like a treasure in a field that a man finds. It's like a pearl of great price. It is like the one lost sheep amongst the hundred. It's like the one lost coin amongst the ten. It's like the one lost son that seems unrecoverable. These are matters of great consequence and great value. You see, here, when one chooses the narrow gate, it leads to life. And the same verb is there. It leads away. Just as the broad way leads away from God, this way leads away. It leads away from the way that leads away. You see, it leads in the other direction. It leads to God, and it leads away from destruction. It leads to eternal life. So we must find the way. We must make a decision, make a choice. You see, when we do this, when one decides whether or not to enter the gate, which is small, this is a hard decision because you're also looking at the pathway beyond the gate. The gate is small. And the word there really actually means to be surrounded by many obstacles. So there are obstacles around the gate that would prevent us from entering. The way is narrow. And the word there really is a cognate for the word to suffer, to suffer distress and trouble and affliction. So Jesus is telling his disciples when the narrow way beyond the gate is such. It is one of pressure. It is one of possible affliction. We're making a decision when we follow Jesus to be in the minority, for the world to hate us, 
In Acts, the 14th chapter, it says, through many tribulations, you see, we must enter the kingdom of God. We must be, when we make this decision to enter the narrow gate, wholeheartedly committed with a kind of tenacity and faithfulness to walk the way after we go through the gate. Jesus said this, and I said it last week. When we make that decision, it's like a farmer plowing his field. You see, once we have put our hand to the plow, if we look back, we not only plow a crooked furrow, <laughs> but we're not fit for the kingdom of God. So you see, we must find it. We must then assess and make a decision, but it's not enough to do just that. He, talk, he calls upon us to act. We must respond to his command. It's not enough to know about Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know about the kingdom of God. It's not enough just to repent. It's not enough to feel guilty for how badly we feel about the way we have acted, how we have treated others. That's not enough. It's not enough to intend to turn around and go the other way, you see, because we cannot do that by ourselves. We must make a decision to enter the gate and to follow through in the pathway afterward. Now, let me say something about this narrow way that I think I, I believe is misunderstood. What are the small gate and the narrow way not? Well, first of all, they are not legalism, friends. You see, the Pharisees' way was a broad way. It was about keeping rules, and that's not what Jesus is calling us to do here. Oh, yes, we obey God after we go through the gate, but it's not essentially about keeping rules, you see. What did Jesus say? He said, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You will not enter the kingdom of God. The Pharisees' way was the broad way. It was not the good way. This narrow way is not about perfectionism. But wait a minute. He said, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. He didn't mean that God's sitting up there ticking off whether or not you have made a mistake here or there. Although God does watch, and it does grieve Him when we sin, but there's forgiveness. John 1, we read it today. No, but it's not about perfectionism in that sense. What Jesus is saying is He's just told them, love your enemies. Don't hate them. He's saying, be perfect like your Father. Have a perfect love like your Father. Be the person that your Father made you to be. That is to be perfect. This is not about dogmatism. It's not a narrow theological kind of thing. That's what the Sadducees did. We keep only the Torah, and they tried to have a very narrow theological agenda. Folks, we have fundamentalists today that would have a very narrow dogmatic agenda, and they believe that they're fundamentalist agenda. Or on the other hand, a liberal agenda. Either one is the answer. Folks, this is not about theological dogmatism on the left or on the right. It's not about spiritual elitism. No, it's not about setting our, ourselves apart from the society. Jesus never said that we're taken out of the world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. It's not like the Essenes who separated themselves from the rest of Jewish society. It's not about some kind of spiritual elitism. It's not about being narrow-minded either. But wait a minute. This is the narrow way. So surely we are to be narrow-minded. It's not being judgmental, and it's not being puritanical. Jesus was not a puritanical person. He was broad-minded, even though he was the narrow way. What did he say? He said, you look at John the Baptist, and you look at his habit and his lifestyle. He was an ascetic. He lived out in the wilderness. He had a hair shirt. And you say, he had a demon. 
But then you look at the Son of Man and you say, He eats and He drinks, therefore He's a drunkard and glutton. And you heard what we read earlier before we started worship this morning. You see what that is a sign of? It is an adulterous and sinful generation that's narrow-minded and the world plays its tune and expects you to dance to that tune. And Jesus never danced to the tune of the world. You see, it's not that kind of narrow-mindedness. Instead, the small gate and the narrow gate is a kind of middle way. Now, I have to be careful here. It's not a compromise. But it, it's, it's a way that Jesus charts between all of this dissonance on either side that I have talked about. It resists those outside pressures that we have talked about that deflect our focus from God. It doesn't compromise. It carefully follows Jesus. But it doesn't dance to the world's tune. It doesn't dance to the tune of children playing the flute in the marketplace. No, it stays focused on seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You see, this isn't, folks. It's not about a place. The gate is not a place. The gate is not a position. The gate is not a status. The gate is not a condition. The gate is the person of Jesus Christ. For what did He say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 10, He said, I am the door of the sheepfold. And in both of those, there is a very exclusive message that is being proclaimed. Nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through me, through the way. You see, and I am the only door. You see, the thief and the robber comes in from behind and sneaks in and tries to come into the sheepfold, but there is only one door, and it is the Son of Man. You see, salvation, friends, is a free gift. It is priceless. It comes by coming to Jesus Christ. By entering Him. It is priceless. He invites us to come to Him as the way, the truth, and the life, to enter the door of eternal salvation. It is priceless, but the cost is different. The cost is unimaginable. Jesus said this, you see, he who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life will find it. What he's talking about here, the cost is an exchange life for life. Let me close with an illustration and then very three quick applications. You know, in 1965, there was a hit by the Impressions. It rose to number three on the Billboard charts for rhythm and blues. It followed their hit, 1964, Amen. You remember that in the movie Lily of the Fields with Sidney Poitier? Remember that song? The Impressions sang a new song that Curtis Mayfield composed. He was their lead singer. It became, Rolling Stone said, the 24th best song ever written, even though it only rose to number three that year. I believe one of the reasons was because Martin Luther King made it the anthem for the civil rights movement. And you know the words. People, get ready. There's a train a-coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. Don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord. So people get ready for the train of Jordan, picking up passengers coast to coast. Faith is the key. Open the doors and boredom. There's hope for all among those loved the most. There ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind just to save his own. Believe me now, have pity on those whose chances grow thinner for there is no hiding place. There will come a day when there is no hiding place. 
against the kingdom's throne. So people, get ready. There's a train a-coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is what? Faith. To hear the diesels humming. Don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord. There's a lot of truth to this secular song. Truth about grace, the worldly baggage that we set aside, all of our worldly valuables that we turn over to the Lord. And also, folks, as the choir sang this morning, the baggage of guilt and shame that is set aside. There is no price on the ticket. Jesus paid everything. You see, he paid for the ticket, he paid for the trip, and he paid for the accommodation at the destination. The entry, the journey, the destination are priceless. He paid it all, but folks, there is a cost. There is a cost, you see, to enter the gate. Faith is the key, and it's not just believing. Faith is entrusting our whole life to Jesus Christ. The gate is small. The way is straight, and the gauge of the rails is very narrow. There's one gate. There's one train. There's one ticket master. There's one conductor. There's one engineer, and it is Jesus Christ our Lord. So let me make three closing applications. Friends, this decision about entering the gate and walking the way are not two decisions that are separate from each other. They're independent and they're connected with one another. You see, we enter the gate for salvation, which is evangelistic, and we walk the pathway of obedience afterward, which is discipleship, it's ethical. But the decisions are inseparable. Without doing one, the other is meaningless. We can't walk the narrow way without entering the gate. And folks, there are a lot of people that try to do that. That's nothing but legalism. And you can't be admitted to the gate by Jesus Christ if he knows in your heart of hearts that you're not committed to and willing to walk the walk afterward. In other words, both actions involve surrender to Jesus Christ as the gate and the way. First observation, if you're making a decision today, don't take it lightly. If you're about to enter the gate of Jesus Christ, assess the cost that comes afterward because he asked for you to give him your all. Second application. This is about entering a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, many say, is a great ethical message, and it is. But folks, the Sermon on the Mount ultimately is not just an ethical manual of teachings. Christ's ultimate purpose of his sermon was not just to teach ethical things. Because when he gives the invitation, he makes it very clear. The whole purpose of his message was to do what? Now that you've heard the ethic of the kingdom, now I do what? I invite you to come in. You see, the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to invite people to enter him, to walk with him, to enter through the gate and to walk the way of life into eternal life. Think about it. Our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees did enter the kingdom. Folks, you can't do that. None of us can Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. You can't do it. I can't do it. Always staying focused on the kingdom of God and His righteousness. None of us can do that. Always treating others as we should be treated, want to be treated. We can't do that. The only way that we can begin to do those things that He has commanded us to do is because we have chosen to walk with Him. Only He is able to help us to be able to obey in the way that He has called us to do. You see, this is about entering into a relationship with the Lord of all creation who promises to walk with you, calls upon you to shed your baggage of guilt and sin and shame and to walk with Him in the purity of life that only He can sustain.
The last observation is this. There's cause for pause and reflection. You see, there are those who say that they follow Christ, but when you look at their lives, they continue to walk the broad way. And we must ask this question. If we say we follow Christ, but we walk the broad way, did we ever enter the gate? You see, there were false prophets that thought they had. There were name droppers that thought they had. There were foolish listeners that thought they had. And Jesus says, there's going to come a day when you say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I don't know you. This is serious matter, folks. If we say that we're following Christ, have we actually entered Christ? And are we walking the narrow way? And the last is this. You see, because the narrow way demands a radical change, we have to ask this question. When we made our profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or if you are about to do it today, did it or does it cost you anything? Did my decision to follow Jesus Christ cost me anything at all? Did it change my life in a significant manner? And folks, if it didn't, then we must reassess whether we have ever entered Christ at all. And it leads to the last question, friends. If you're listening to this message this morning, and you've never made the decision to enter Christ, count the cost. He calls you to walk on the way beyond, and He offers the gift of eternal life. And now is the day. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And what? All these things will be added unto you. What is your decision this morning? What is God calling you to do wherever you stand, wherever you sit, wherever you might be watching? Is He calling you to make a decision to enter the gate of Jesus Christ? Is there something about your walk that maybe hasn't been right with the Lord? You have made a commitment to walk with Him, but you find yourself walking the broad way. Well, the answer to that is what Samuel read from 1 John this morning. If we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and continue to walk with us and take us home with the Father. What is God's decision that He wants you to make in your life today as you respond to the invitation?